Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. In this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, Sue Kalinsky and I talk about pondering plastic surgery. Plus, we are joined by the legendary character actor Dennis O'Hare, whose latest project is The Accidental Wolf. Don't forget, subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast and feel free to leave us a rating and a review. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue, you look great. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm going golfing later. Nice. I'm feeling confident. Cool. So we shall see what happens. Yes. Well, we want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to the podcast, you can rate us, you can review us, you can complain about us, whatever that happens to be. And uh, we've got Dennis O'Hare, the great actor, coming up for you on the show. So, so I've got a decision to make. Mm-hmm. Um, I, right now, I'm not wearing a hat. My hair, I rolled out of bed. This is what I'm rolling with, right? So mm-hmm. do I go hat or what I got right now, which is I, I think isn't the best hair day for me. You know, you have really, really great hair, Steve. Yeah. So I think you should flaunt it. Flaunt it? Mm-hmm. You think that I got this work? Okay. And the other thing I'm looking, uh, I, I, when you, before you got here, I'm looking at myself in the zoom, which is terrible, right? To just sit mm-hmm. and look at yourself for a long mm-hmm. time. Like I would never sit and look at myself for 10 minutes in a mirror, but when I'm getting ready to go on zoom, I sit here and look at myself. So I'm thinking about, (laughs) okay, I'll I'll be honest. I was thinking about having plastic surgery. What? Where? Okay. So you see how my eyes are sort of, sort of hooded. They call it hooded eyes. Right. Okay. So this is, I think this is, they call it the Joe Biden where you, where you get your eyes just like a little more. Oh, what do you think? It's so creepy. Is it? Remember when Kenny Rogers did it? Oh, God, Kenny Rogers. Yeah, he went too far. You know, I uh, just just Do you have judgment about people that have plastic surgery. Well, I just think that there's so many chances of it going horribly wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and it's not to say that you're going to like go back and back and back. But I just think that, you know, I, I look at people like. Take, for instance, Julie Christie, who is probably close to 80, maybe. Yeah, right. And she's gorgeous. Yep. And she's older because she is older. (laughs) You know what I mean? Sure. And then you look at people like Janice Dickinson and Melanie Griffin and um, not Melanie Griffin, um, Meg Ryan. Right. And, and, they're and, like a, and Faye Dunaway. They're like a science project from the neck up. It's just, you know, my theory about cosmetic surgery and 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 the surgeons who do it. Yeah. It should be like you go to a bar. Yeah. They cut you off after you've had a certain amount of drinks. <laughs> and, and these cosmetic surgeons, as long as you're going to pay them, they're going to just keep on 
cutting away. <laughs> and it should be illegal. I mean, they should be put in jail. Like someone should walk in, you know, and their <laughs> their face. I mean, it's just so unrecognizable to even being a face, you know, <laughs> And and they should, you know, I like them at a bar, <laughs> you should cut them off. That is fantastic. Like, so, you know, it's like someone comes in, it's like, you know, they want more bow ties. Just one more shot, man. Just one more <laughs> shot. And it's like, no, you've had plenty. Like, yeah. if we can't decipher whether you're laughing or crying or or just have a straight face, you, you are expressionless. That's like the test. Yeah. So I just think. You know, look, getting older, there's a lot of stuff that I hate about being older. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I tell you, one of the things that I that has been very, very troublesome is that I wake up so early. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier than ever. And I'm not a morning person. <laughs> yeah. So I'm getting sometimes I'm getting up at like four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. See, that's true. My grandpa used to get up at four o'clock in the morning. Not comparing you to my grandpa. But. <laughs> well, I think you. I think you are. <laughs> I guess technically I am. Uh, yeah. No, it's just it's because I sat here and looked at myself in the Zoom for ten minutes. Right. That's why. But okay. I, I, I probably would never do it. But I also think you know whatever gets you through the day. You know, if it if you need that extra whatever it is, then get that extra whatever it is. Yeah, I I guess I somebody I just, who had this this I thing and yeah. they look they look good they look good oh, okay well you know if you can find somebody who can get it exactly right because when I I'm By the a way, lot first I'm a lot of plastic surgery don't talk about having it so I'm already breaking that particular yeah there rule. you go yeah but you know you see everybody like you watch TV and all these talking heads everybody has one eye that's slightly more closed than the other i have i have that My I, I think eye. i think but everybody does it's yeah. kind of like everybody has you know one foot oh what is this thing that's coming up here sorry adobe leave me alone <laughs> come up you know timing adobe. adobe read the room read the room adobe <laughs> i'm doing a podcast um you know so it's just like with your feet you know everybody has one foot that's like a little bit bigger than the other. Yeah, right. You know? So that the eye thing is is kind of like that. Um and and like my neck. I'm not crazy about the neck thing, you know? Uh, it's But it's, the neck thing happens to everybody. The no, neck I, thing is unav- there's no plastic surgery for the neck thing where all Oh, you can get you Oh, yeah, sure, that. you can get your neck done. You can get your neck done? Sure. Oh, maybe I should Maybe <laughs> not, I get a get two the neck for one. The- <laughs> Get the neck, neck, and deal. neck and one eye. <laughs> neck and one eye. It's like a, there's a menu. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have the neck and the eyes. Well, wait a minute. I don't know if you get the neck and the eyes, you have to do something with your chin too. It's like <laughs> it's, it's like when you buy a car and yet there's like a package, and it's like, well, I don't want the GPS. I don't want the built-in GPS because I have a GPS, so I don't want to have to spend three thousand more dollars right. to get the built-in GPS. And it's like, well, y- you have to, you have to get the GPS, Yeah, right. you know, with, it's part with, of the, um, deal. Part with, of the with the aftermarket leather. And it's yeah. like, <laughs> well, I just want the aftermarket leather. <laughs> so I want to, let me do something serious here. I know I told you we were going to do something. Now we're not going to do it. Cause I got to, I got something else. I got another thing. 
Okay. So I'm a huge Olympics fan <laughs> and I have done seven Olympics. I've gotten to go to and broadcast seven Olympics. It's one of my favorite things. So we're having the Winter Olympics in China, in Beijing. And it's coming up, I think, February the 3rd. It starts opening ceremonies and all that. So um, I think, I don't think we should be having the Olympics in China. And one reason is all of the U.S. athletes have been told, don't use your real phones. Bring a burner phone because they will steal your data. Now, should we really be having the Olympics in a place where you have to bring a burner phone because everybody's going to steal your stuff? And then another thing, they, you know, they've got this uh, ethnic minority called the Uyghurs there, and they've got a concentration camp with up to a million of these, uh, this ethnic minority. And it's sort of like, would we have had the Olympics in Germany during the Holocaust? Why are we having the Olympics in China while they've got a concentration camp with up to a million people? Yeah. I mean, the Olympics is all about uniting people. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? All these countries coming together, you know, for for a cause and everybody's kind of equal. So, yeah, I don't I don't know why we do anything with China. China's yeah, I, just, I completely is, is agree. Evil. It's like it's a, an evil empire. Yeah, it is. It's an evil empire. And, you know, like the NBA has got a huge market in China. They there's so many so much interest and stuff uh, in China and the NBA. And last year, uh, Daryl Morey, who is the I think he was then the Houston Rockets basketball executive, a friend of mine, actually said something about Hong Kong. And all hell broke loose. And the NBA said, we're going to boycott mm-hmm. the NBA. And it's like, should, should we really cave in to that sort? And the NBA, man, you, you would never mention uh, the Uyghurs or any ethnic minority or the mm-hmm. treatment of people or people disappearing to work camps, any of that stuff. You would never because we don't want to lose. The NBA doesn't want to lose that valuable market. Right. I, just, right. I just think human rights matter. And by the way, I don't think enough people know about what's going on in China with this ethnic minority. It's a it's a horrible horrible ugly uh people are dying and and nobody really knows about it. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't know a lot about it and um I think when it comes to human rights, that's where you you draw the line. You know, yeah. you we have differences in other things, you know, um cultural things, you know, but Human rights is, is, is human rights. That's global, you know, like, like what other country, like, would, would we, you know, you know, you think of like, you know, Syria and, you know, countries that, you know, where they have ethnic cleansing and things like that. Yeah, no, it's true. You know, you're not going to do business with these people. Yeah. So I, I, in any event, you know, they're going to happen and all that, but I love the winter Olympics. Um, I had what I think is my, one of my career highlights was in Salt Lake, where I got to call the bobsled, the luge, and the skeleton. Wow. And I think that my work, and there's a clip we play on the show all the time. I think that when I go back and listen to it now, and I, with, with humility, which means there's none, um, I, I think that those are great calls. That When I hear those, those are great calls. And I sort of invented my own way to call them. 
and everybody loved it. And the uh, head of the Olympics for NBC played back one of my clips and said, this is what we're looking for. It's uh, the vice president of something. His name was David something. And he played this clip and he was like, this is what we're looking for from your calls. Um, and I, I go back and listen to him. I'm like, yeah, I was really, I was really good. A good play-by-play guy. So did you have to like do like so much research to call games that, you know, sports that are kind of like not in your wheelhouse? So much research. Yeah. And like I went down the track in a bobsled, which was really cool. And I got to know the turns and exactly how people went through the turns. And yeah, it was it was fantastic. I I just love doing it. And this year. So I always say, you know, I'm a sports guy. Right. And. I like, I love sports, but I, and I would say I got the, uh, the awards gene, the gay awards gene. <laughs> I got the, uh, the gay, uh, what else? The gay, uh, Broadway gene. <laughs> and then I got the gay figure skating gene. I love the figure skating. And we've got a guy there named Nathan Chen, who I'm really excited to see. He flamed out at the last Winter Olympics. And now it's like they're promoting it's time for redemption. And he's I watched him a little bit at the U.S. trials. He's fantastic. Mm. Uh, So I'm really excited uh, for the figure skating. I love the sliding sports, bobsled, luge, skeleton. And uh, I I just I love I love the downhill skiing. Mm -hmm. I love all that. Will you watch much of the Winter Olympics? I watch, yeah, I watch some of it. I watch some of it. I'm, I'm not as passionate as you are. Not as overwhelmingly enthusiastic. No, no, not like you. Yeah, but I'll, I'll, I'll watch some of it for sure. I think part of it was when I was growing up, we lived where it was cold and where there was snow. You know, Toledo, Ohio, and so we were all socked in at that time of year, and we, mm-hmm. we hung on every night like oh tonight's the downhill oh tonight's the figure skating tonight's and uh and so yeah i love the winter olympics even more than the summer olympics because when the summer olympics were going on in july or august we'd all be out playing you know you go out and play i was playing basketball all that stuff um so i wasn't locked into the house the way i am during the winter but i i do love the winter olympics most people like the summer better than the winter yeah i'm i'm more of a summer but you know, when when I was a kid, I mean, that's that's what I mean. Families did. I mean, you know, you sat in front of the TV and, and watched every event every night. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like the space program. I mean, that was like the most exciting thing. Sure. You know, space program, not as exciting as it used to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, now it's all these billionaires going into space. Yeah. Now you have like everybody, you know, like Target's going to send a ship up, you know, I mean, it's like (laughs) everybody in the world is going to get involved in it. (laughs) All right, let's get to it. huh? Let's get to it. Uh, We have got a really cool guest today. Uh, He is a Tony winner. He is an Emmy nominated actor on stage. He won the Tony for Richard Greenberg's Take Me Out, which I saw and loved. He's a three-time Emmy nominee, once for This Is Us and twice for American Horror Story. He's appeared in movies like 21 Grams and Michael Clayton and A Mighty Heart and Charlie Wilson's War and Dallas Buyers Club and Milk and on and on. His latest project is The Accidental Wolf, back for season two. It is available to stream now exclusively on topic. Dennis O'Hare joins us. Dennis, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Nice to be here. So first off, we both love Accidental Wolf. We had Kelly O'Hara on the show last week, and 
we started watching the show. I think both of us started watching the show one night, completely addictive. I think we raced through the entire thing in one night. <laughs> uh, it's almost like Ariane Moyed was also on the show. Uh, new style for a show, uh, yeah. different format. You know what I mean? I think it's great. I mean, you know, I was, I, I, I was, when Ariane was explaining it to me, you know, he was talking about it being in small bites. And what, what's so cool about that is that you can put those bites together. You know, it's like modular. It's like, it's like building a Lego set, I think. And you can decide to watch three. And that's, that's a certain kind of evening. Or you can do what you guys did. <laughs> you watch all of it. Um, or you can just watch a little bit if you're on your phone, you know, and you, do, you only have five minutes or six minutes, whatever it is. I think it's a really interesting way to, to, um, to think and to, and to view and to experience. Yeah, like it totally packs a punch in a small yeah. amount of time, you know. Um, yeah. You know, and not not every episode is the same time. You know, some of them were like twenty something minutes, some of them were thirty minutes. Yeah. Um, so suspenseful. Great yeah. story. I, mean, I think he did an amazing job. And you know, what what's unusual about it too is that you know Arian's point of view as a human being is sort of to consider the other and to ask difficult questions about you know privilege. And who we are, and what do we do for the stranger, and what do we do for the other, and what is your what is your obligation to people, other people, people you may not know, who you may not feel necessarily are in your world, and I think that's such a a great thing to be meditating on in this day and age. Yeah, you know, but it's also one of those things where is it real? Is it not real? Because there is such an array of these, you know, shysters who are yeah. preying on yeah, people. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I've gotten I've gotten messages and emails like, you know, I'm in, you know, Somalia and uh, you know, my, you know, I'm I'm being held hostage and you know, please send me, you know, $2000 and it's like, you know, who who are you and is this real? I mean, am I being had? Yeah, it brings up that that, you know, that that our human nature is at once both we're giving and we're suspicious. We are open and yet we are closed because the world, as you say, can be a tricky place. You know, the show is obviously about this this woman played by Kelly, but it's filled with conspiracy and paranoia and your character's uh, private uh, investigator and he yeah. gets all paranoid. It looks like that's a fun thing to play. It is fun to play also because, you know, uh, we, we don't always know what we're talking about. And so I'll say to Arian, what, what am I, what am I, what am I saying? What, what, what's happening? Am I, am I, am I serious? But, um, you know, cause it's pretty complicated and I love the fact that as an actor and a character, we can all be confused similarly. And, um, you know, it's also, I think I love my character because he's the kind of, I don't know, um, older, old fashioned guy who always has to know and has to pretend that he knows even when he doesn't know. And, you know, at one point he, he gets afraid because he's getting in too deep. And I love that very human thing where you can see this guy kind of going, okay, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. It's too much for me, too much for me. I can't handle it. Like, so, so who is this guy? Like when you, when you're working on a character, how much with, with every role that you play, does it vary of 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 your of how deep your backstory goes? Yeah, you know, it it depends on you know. I, I had a great teacher uh, at David Downs at Northwestern, and and I was sort of taught with a, a version of Stanislavski. And what you're what you always ask yourself is, first of all, what do I need to bring? 
you know, the, the, the joke always was, if you're playing a, a Greek messenger in a Greek play, we don't need to know about your mother. We don't need to know about your backstory. We need to know what you're saying. That's all. You're, you're here to do one thing, to tell everybody that Medea just killed all of her kids off stage. That's all we got to know for you. So that's one of the things you ask yourself is, what do I need to bring? And then, you know, the other thing you ask yourself is, what will enrich what I'm bringing? And so I tend to do a lot of backstory and a lot of work. And sometimes it's just plain instinctual. You know, I look at the writing. If it's good writing, word choice will inform you. Good costumer will say something. You'll kind of go, oh, cool. I hadn't thought about that. Um, you know, even, even the given circumstances, late at night, skulking around on a porch in shadows is going to help you make that character and then you're also you're you're channeling great archetypes you know we have an, a great archetype of the private detective who's kind of down on his luck who's you know grammar is not perfect you know who is wearing clothes that are a little you know suspect maybe maybe he needs uh, extra money he, he you know he only or he only gets paid in cash what are those things you know that's william holden that's you know Sunset Boulevard, it's all these, all these tropes that we know. And so you're sort of borrowing from that stuff too. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a stitch together job sometimes. You know, you have done so much, so many different shows, so many different movies. And I always know who Dennis O'Hare is, right? I, I, I know you, I know your work, but do you get a lot of people saying, are you that guy from, or I, I know you're an actor, but I don't know where you're from. Yeah. That sort of reaction. Well, it's funny, you know, um, there's a, I know when someone recognizes me and so I'll be on the street and I'll just, I'll see that look, you know, it happened to Starbucks the other day. I was, I, I'm in London working and the guy handed me my tea, just like he, he held on to my cup too long. And I was like, okay, I'm clocked. And, you know, and I, I'm very open to those experiences. And so I didn't say anything. I'm not, what am I going to say? And I sat down and I he kept coming by me to like say things. <laughs> and then finally he said, um, he basically said, uh, so are you, can you talk about why you're here as a top secret? And I said, no, I'm working on the thing called trying for Apple TV. I just finished the nevers. And, um, and in my mind, I was like, I bet he's an American horror story fan. Yeah. And I bet, I bet he likes season five and I've gotten very, very good at pinpointing where they're from. I love when I'm wrong and I love when people kind of go by and they'll they're like, they're a Judge Abernathy fan from The Good Wife. And, yep. you know, or somebody like me in this, you know, Edgar Allan Poe thing, I did for PBS. And I'm like, wow, you're random. And somebody else, you know, <laughs> like me from, I did a one-man show for years called An Iliad. I still do it. And I've had people who've seen that show, which is even more unlikely. So you, you kind of you kind of never know what they know you from. Um, but the, the, the sort of, I guess, less pleasant version of that is, Somebody stops you and goes, "Oh, who are you? you you're who are you? Who are you supposed to be? Who are you? Who are you?" <laughs> and then you've got to like go. You know, I've I've got a I've got a life. I'm going somewhere. Maybe I've got something I'm doing, and you've got to satisfy their weird, you know, thing. And you go, "Oh, I'm an actor. I did True Blood. Uh, what? I don't know that. <laughs> um, well, I did American Horror Story. I oh, I hate horror. No, no, no. Who are you supposed to be?" Uh, I did the good wife. What's that? And so you're on the street. You're like, you're going through your resume, you know, hoping you can satisfy them, you know, and, and hit the, hit the magic thing. And then, you know, that one was actually, this is us. Um, Oh, you were Jesse and this is us. And then they're lovely. And I go, I'm like, I loved it so much. My husband and I love, we cry. 
but you never know. You never know. Hmm. So um, I watched something uh, last night that you did, uh, a film that you wrote, um, mm. The Parting Glass. Oh, cool. And I don't know how this eluded me. Um, it was, I, I could tear up talking about it because it oh, was just wow. such a, a, a beautiful, beautiful film uh, about you. your, your sister who committed suicide. And I'm watching this movie because it, 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 you, you go with your siblings to the, to the, uh, to the town where she lived to, to gather her things. And I'm one of five. So you, you're one of five and just the relationship that you have with them and the minutiae stuff, you know, driving yeah. in the car and all the craziness of trying to coordinate everybody. And you've captured everything so brilliantly. But what, what I kept on thinking when I was watching it, this was real. I mean, this was, yeah. and you were the only actor in this that it was real for. And I just, what did it feel like going through this and reliving this moment? I'm, first of all, thank you for watching it. Um, you know, I, I the movie is obviously dear to my heart, uh, but also a part of why I made it was that suicide is a difficult topic, and people who've experienced it don't often feel part of a community because, you know, suicide is it's difficult to talk about, and there's always the lingering doubt somewhere that something else could have happened. There could have been a different outcome. And that somehow you were to blame or you did something wrong. So, you know, for me, it's an advocacy movie in a way. I want those people who've also dealt with suicide to, to relate, to understand, to feel that they're part of this, you know, this community of us. And, um, you know, it's funny because the, the, in real life, my two sisters did not come. It was my brother and I and my sister. And I, you know, I feel terrible with my brother, but I said to him, why I did was I had to fictionalize something. Otherwise, it was too much. So I had to make it a work of art. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do it. So by making my one sister who wasn't present, by putting her in it, I turned it into a work of art that had a point of view and wasn't simply therapy. You know, And so that, that helped a lot. Um, and it's funny because there's a scene at the end. We're all in the room together. My brother shows up and that scene is entirely fictional. It did not happen. Mm. And yet that was the hardest scene for me to shoot because it's where my character sort of breaks down. And that was a very, I dreaded that scene. Oh my God, I didn't want to do that scene. I just wanted to keep putting it off because I knew that that was the moment when, when my character, Danny would finally break through. And, um, but it was fictional. It was entirely made up. You know, I was curious when I was watching it, and that was the question I was going to ask you. Did you embellish? Did Was there anything that wasn't true? Like one thing with, with, the, uh, with your sister's husband when he was driving and your dad, brilliantly played by Edward Asner, um, um, he, was, he was driving kind of erratic. And I was thinking, I wonder, was, did he really drive like that? Was he a herky-jerky driver? Or was that something? Well, first that of all, that was Ed's improv line, by the way. Most of the script is very off the cuff, and most of the script is like it's written with ums and uhs, and it's like that. But that was actually an improvised line. It was brilliant. Um, you know, yes. I mean, so much is true. I mean, most of it is true. All the stuff we did in the diner is true. There are word verbatim, word for word things. Mm. 
When my sister died, we all wanted a piece of her hair. That's absolutely true. We argued about it. Me and my family is very, very funny. And there were a lot of laughs. We had a lot of laughs. But you know, a, a lot of that dialogue is absolutely verbatim from my memory of what my father said and my sister said. And even the sister who wasn't there, it's what she would have said and what she did say. You know, there's a, a great scene. We're in a, a car together and telling a story about a funeral home. Um, that's true. It's mm. absolutely true. The guy's name is Chris Lynch, and I forgot to change his name. <laughs> it's the real person. And he contacted me about, I guess, about five months ago just to say hi. And I said, Chris, I'm so sorry. I didn't get clearance to use your name. I used you in my movie. He was like, oh, don't worry about it. But it was it was crazy. Um, mm. You know, but so even when things were fictionalized, the spirit was true. You know what I mean? And, and the, the broad outlines of the show were true. Um, and, and, and so much of it was actually verbatim. You know, my sister did leave a suicide note to her dogs, which to this day is just mm. like, what do you do with that? That's just baffling. It's just hard to get your mind around and you can't make that stuff up, you know, but uh, I, I thought Ed Asner was brilliant. I thought Cynthia Nixon was so perfect. Melissa Leo you know, what she can do with just a look is extraordinary. And, you know, and Anna Paquin playing Kathleen, my sister, you know, a really, really difficult um, uh, part. And I thought she did an extraordinary job. And Stephen Moyer, who directed, I thought was the perfect person to direct. Just perfect. I want to ask you about Take Me Out, uh, because Sue and I both saw Take Me Out. And we're both big, big, big baseball fans. And you won the nice. Tony for this role. And uh, you play a character who originally isn't a baseball fan who becomes one through this story. And I'm wondering, were you a baseball fan? And, and did you become one? Because you have that great monologue in that show. Uh, that's called acting, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I, I, you know what? I played baseball all through high school. I like baseball. I think it's great. I, and I, I understand the appeal of baseball. And I love Richard Greenberg, the writer, so much. And I loved that speech. And I understood that speech and I embraced that speech. Um, I am an opera fan. And <laughs> so I, I, I transfer my love of opera to baseball in that way, you know, and I, by the way, liked baseball a lot more after doing that play. And we, as a, we, as a group of guys went to a couple of baseball games together and had a great time. So it, it opened uh, originally in London, right? Yeah. Yeah. And at the Donmar warehouse. Yeah. So was there a stark difference with reactions from a London audience than when it came to New York? You know, it's funny. Um, when we did it in London, it was a different play, meaning it had three acts and it had two intermissions and it was a longer play. And I had a uh, massive monologue in both acts, in, in two of the acts. And uh, so it was a different structure. Um, it was done in a very small theater physically. Um, I think during that run, we cut one of my monologues because it was just redundant and it felt like it was robbing the first one. So it was, it was going through, you know, kind of uh, changes. Um, we got to Off-Broadway. We did it at the, at the, at the public Off-Broadway in a, a theater in the round. So a very weird theater, uh, a great theater, but a very unusual setup. And then when we moved to Broadway, we cut the second intermission, he had to do a lot of cutting and he got it down to two acts and we put it into proscenium, which is completely different. So he went from playing something, you know, to three quarters to playing it dead on. 
which is really, really a, a massive change. So part of it is it's hard to even gauge because everyone saw a different play. Mm. So the people in London saw a different play than the people in, in um, I do think that there is also a level of knowing that an American audience brought to it that a British audience didn't have. So, you know, the, the baseball thing, some of the baseball jokes, some of the baseball, I don't know, um, insider uh, stuff, what a pitcher is, what a catcher is, the Japanese pitcher. I think these things are jokes that I don't think landed as much on the Brits. And, um, and you know, the racial element, you know, the, the play is very uh, mature in its discussion subtly about racism. We have two, you know, Hispanic players who don't speak English. And we have two black players and, and then we have a, a, a racist white guy. You know? And, and also the fact that it's talking about, um, uh, a gay player. And, uh, so there's a lot of very American things about it that I felt like maybe the Americans got better. But having said that, it was a big hit in London and I, I didn't feel like it, 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 I felt like it landed beautifully in London and audiences really seemed to like it, you know, and the funny thing is, it, comedy is comedy and people laugh at the same jokes. You know what I mean? Mm. We didn't get, we got the same laughs there and the same laughs here. And so that's, that's sort of a, a good indication. So you've been nominated for three Emmys, two for American horror story and one for this is us. And right. I cannot imagine two shows that are more different in the no. world. <laughs> I mean, those, they are, they are the, almost the, the polar opposite. Now American horror story. Yeah brilliant stuff brilliant twisted minds behind this show how how much of that is ryan murphy how how hands-on is, is he it's 100 percent ryan it really is that's his brain he you know he's a genius when it comes to um creation and so he he comes up with these ideas and you know he's got a team of scriptwriters who are also contributing their incredible talents to this but then he's overseeing the whole the whole thing and he's giving it his sort of you know his style his imprimatur you know in terms of us I, I think he writes for us he writes with us in mind he knows what we can do and he and he either is pushing us to do something different or asking us to do something that he knows we will be good at um my favorite conversation other other with ryan was i was doing the normal heart with him and uh he was directing me and I hadn't been signed on for season two. I couldn't do it. So I was sort of out of the family and uh, I'd done season one and he walked by me at one point. He goes, um, I have a great part for you. You're not going to want to do it. And I was like, <laughs> what? He goes, oh, you, you're, you're not going to want to do it. You can't do it anyway. I mean, you know, it's a character. He has his tongue cut out. He doesn't speak. You're not, you can't do it. You can't do it. And of course I was like, yes, I'll do it. I want, yes, I want to do it. Um, and that's kind of the way he, you know, he operates. And that was, that was kind of all the direction I ever got from that character was that his, his tongue is cut out and he, he can't speak and he's Jessica Lang's henchman. And, um, I had the best time, you know, I absolutely adored it. And, uh, he's really good at the well-placed direction. You know, he'll come in and he'll say with just one little thing to give you a note. And if you're a perceptive actor, you'll take the note and go, ah, and you'll let that note run through everything and let it, let it help you help, help you build a character. You know, I was doing Liz Taylor in season five, who was a transgender character and I'm a vaudevillian, you know what I mean? I'm going for the laugh. And so I was sort of, you know, gussying up this one moment 
And he walked by and he said, she's not being funny. Hmm. And I went, okay, cool. And it took it to heart and it just made, it opened up everything. It just went, I went, Phew! and it, it changed everything. And it, it put me on the right path. And so, you know, not only is he a, a great writer and creator, he's a great director and he's able to diagnose really quickly and easily what an actor needs to hear. Hmm. So what was it like working with Lady Gaga? You know, she's great. I mean, I, I think the thing that most impressed me with her was her willingness to work really hard uh, and her willingness to be one of us. You know, there was no special treatment. There was no carve out. She didn't ask for anything. She showed up on set and did her work. She's very, very generous. Um, she took care of us. You know, she met at parties at her house. Um, she would bring little gifts and things, uh, but just really cool. I, she, she was very, very cool. And as far as being a scene partner, you know, she always brought it. You know, that's the thing about that show is that whether it's Jessica Lange or Sarah Paulson or Evan Peters or Franny Conroy or Lily Rabe or, you know, the great Kathy Bates, you're always working against somebody who is formidable. They're going to make you work. You better be ready to work. You better be at their level. You better be prepared. And Lady Gaga was no exception. You know what I mean? She she came ready to work. She brought it. She made the scenes better. She challenged it. She made me better, you know. So the uh, movie Milk means a lot to me because of who oh, yeah. Harvey Milk is in the world and in history. And my friend Bruce Cohen actually was one of the uh, was the executive producer. Of I that, love so. Bruce. I love he, Bruce. He's a great guy. Great guy. And Sean Penn was brilliant. When you're in a project like that, or in, for example, Dallas Buyers Club, both movies that I I love. Do you feel a special kind of weight of responsibility? You know, uh, you in terms of milk, um, I would say more so because it's so freighted with. Um, political import you know who he is what he did what that story is is so important dallas bias but we didn't know you know we we didn't know what it was what it was going to be there was there was no way of knowing how it was going to hit the hit the zeitgeist um um and so that that's a that's a whole different thing um and i have different feelings i love that movie i'm so sad that jean marc is dead i just can't yeah, believe he's gone yeah. so I, I love that man i i look forward to seeing more of him in the world but you know with milk you know i'll tell you one story you probably know the story is that um dan white's son came to the set so he wanted to visit and he wanted to i think me and talk with sean as some sort of weird expiation, I think, hmm. for his father's crime. Um, because obviously, you know, he's haunted by it and his life has been derailed by it, by what his father did. And um, and I don't want to misrepresent what happened, but I do think there was a point at which they had to basically kind of go, you can't come anymore. So we got to, we got to like, you know, but it was a very intense and there were real people there. You know, a lot of the guys who were there were extras or consultants so the real world was around that movie and so you're right it was freighted with an incredible sense of place i mean um uh jonathan moscone who is a theater director who's a friend of ours uh that was his dad who died yeah. the mayor you know and, and jonathan's a friend of ours we know jonathan 
Victor Garber is playing that part and they're friends. So there's a lot of that weird sort of crossover between real life. And, and I played John Briggs, you know, who was a, a, um, a, you know, a negative influence in the world. And his nephew or great nephew was working on our set. And he approached me at one point and he goes, I'm John Briggs's nephew or great nephew. And, and this kid was clearly gay. <laughs> he was yeah. like, I just want to you know, introduce myself to you because you're playing my, my right uncle. And I just, you know, it's really important for me to be here. So a lot of people showed up to be around that movie for very personal reasons. So there was a lot of, there was know, a lot of controversy, but I know there was some controversy about Sean Penn playing a gay character. And this is something that I'm sure has been going on, you know, for years and will continue to go on for years. We, we just interviewed, um, uh, Troy Kotzer, is that how we say his yeah, name? Yeah, Troy Kotzer. From, from, from CODA. And on a different, you know, a different, you know, kind of a, 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 it's kind of a similar kind of a situation where deaf characters played by hearing, you know, actors and, you know, vice versa, you know, not vice versa, but that's, that's kind of a thing. And I know Marley Matlin said that she wouldn't have done the film if they didn't cast deaf actors. So what was your feel? What do you, what are your feelings about them? I and mean, you're, you're, you're a gay actor about, about straight guys playing gay characters. You know, I think it's a matter of um, opportunity and representation. So, you know, not to be long winded, but a friend of mine um, is um, uh, an Asian voiceover actor and, you know, he plays a lot of Asian characters. And as he says, I should play those characters because you know, he, as he puts it, anyone else doing it is imitating, which can turn into characterization. He's doing it from a, a well-funded place of, that's my mother. That's what my dad sounded like. That's what my uncle sounded like. His way of bringing it is going to be funded in a different way. But the political part of it is that, and also as an Asian voiceover actor or as an Asian actor, he's not getting as much work. Hmm. There are parts written for him. So he should at least be able to play the parts that are appropriate to him. And so a lot of it is that, you know, deaf actors don't get a lot of work. There are not a lot of parts written for them. And there are deaf actors. Trans actors don't get a lot of opportunity to work. You know, um, uh, there are a lot of gay actors who aren't cast in straight roles. I, I'm lucky in that I get, I get to play everybody. But there are a lot of gay actors who just won't be cast in those roles. So by them not being able to play a gay character, they're not getting work. So for me, it's, it's a double thing. It's, it's, it's opportunity. Who is, who is getting the opportunity? Who is taking the opportunity? When it comes to someone like Sean, I'm not sure that that movie gets made without a person of his stature. Mm. And that's just the business. Uh, that's the, and maybe that's wrong and maybe that's going to change. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in this world and I tried to get my movie made. It was so hard for me to get my movie made. And I had Melissa Leo and Cynthia Nixon. And even then it was like, it was so hard to get anybody to give us money. And so maybe that's their fault. Maybe it's the fault of the, of the, of the money aspect of it. And maybe they should, they should change. But as long as we have a system where you're not going to get your budget, if you don't have that figure, um, you know, now we have gay actors of stature who can play those parts. So we have, you know, we have people like, you know, Matt, and we have people like, you know, Ian McKellen, and we have people like, um, I'm forgetting everybody's name, of course, <laughs> you know, Jonathan Groff, 
you have people who are big enough names that maybe they can bring in that money. Um, you know, there's also the weird thing that I thought Sean did a great job as Harvey Milk. I thought Sean looked like him. Yeah. You know, I thought I, you know, and, and also Sean is a great actor. He's a great actor. He's a great character actor. He's a great actor. So I don't know. Do you go for somebody who looks the part? Do you go with somebody who can channel the part? Do you go from somebody, you know, I mean, I, I definitely am sort of all over the map on this topic. I've, I've definitely seen straight guys playing gay characters where I kind of go, no, no, because two gay men would put their hands on each other in a very different way than you guys just did. And two gay men wouldn't think twice about doing a certain thing. Whereas for you, it was intellectual. I remember seeing him, I think with two gay guys where one guy kissed the other guy in the forehead. I'm like, no, I've never <laughs> kissed my husband in the forehead. Who does that? You know, so That's a straight that, guy who's not having sex with his wife. Anyway, yeah, or, yes. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's just like, it's just like, some of it's just plain instinctual. There are things that if you are, if you are closer in origin to the thing you're playing, you may have an instinct beyond the script that brings a, a richness to it that somebody else isn't going to bring. How, you know, and again, as I say, I'm all over the map. I don't want to live in a world where we have rules where we're not allowing sometimes an actor who is you know, perfect for a role, not to play that role because of a political reason. Um, I, and if, if I were in a position of hiring, I, you know, I, I would, it'd be a struggle, but uh, you know, you're balancing all these things. What is the, what is the, what is the history of this community? Has this community had representation? Is this community getting employment? Is this community able to, you know, and also just to being smart about it, what does the community think? Let's ask them. How do you feel about this? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Bring somebody on board who can who can give you insight, not permission, because you're not looking for permission, but insight. But you know, this is as we go forward, it's going to continue to be a really tricky um, uh, topic. And I think we just got to keep opening ourselves up to thinking about putting yourself in the other person's shoes and thinking about it. You know. So I'm a huge movie junkie, and uh, particularly because of the show. I mean, we see everything. We saw most of the movies from 2020, and I loved West Side Story and Coda and Belfast and even Spider-Man No Way Home, which I thought was fantastic and really clever and smart. What movies did you love for the last year? Uh, I love West Side Story. You know, I was definitely skeptical, and it's funny, in the first 10 minutes i was like why are we doing this it's it's a remake it's the same movie but it wasn't the same movie and it was so beautifully done um i thought those actors nailed the period speech period movement period i don't know how they did that i was blown away the, uh, those people all felt like they were from a different era i was really blown away by that i love tony kushner i thought he did a beautiful job in making certain kind of changes. I love Rita Moreno in it. I thought that was a, a great example of, again, giving voice to a community that was possibly marginalized in the first version. Um, the bones of that piece are brilliant. I mean, the lyrics, the music, it's, it's, it's just got brilliant bones. I love Belfast. I thought it was, I thought it was so heartbreaking. I thought um, Jamie Dornan was extraordinary in it. Um, and I don't know the woman's name who played the mother. I thought she was, unbelievable it just the, the whole cast was unbelievable and what a really cool 
sort of movie to make about that place and that period and to tell that story. And I thought it was, I thought it was really, really well done. Um, uh, what else did I love? Uh, I liked um, Power of the Dog. I wasn't blown away by it. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it, it feels like it's a respectful film and I'm, I'm being asked to respect it. And I'm like, okay, I respect it. Um, but it, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't take me on a journey that I, I was, I was compelled by it. I just saw Licorice Pizza last night, which is a wild movie. I oh, love that movie. A wild movie. I did too. Um, and I loved it because the people in it were real. Those two yep. lead actors were like real people with real faces. I thought it was, I thought it was extraordinary. I, I, every, all the casting in that was extraordinary. And what a bizarre script. And again, Sean Penn showing up. Yeah, Sean Penn was like, so funny in that movie. <laughs> playing like a William Holden character again. Someone just like crazy. What was that? Brad Bradley Cooper. What yeah. is that character? <laughs> that was crazy stuff. I even love that uh, that agent. The scene with uh, oh with Harry, Harry Harris. Harry oh, Harris. So funny. You're a or killer. John Mike, she says John Michael Kiggins and that like awful racist. Like <laughs> what? <laughs> That was so uncomfortable, but you know, I thought that was a pretty brilliant, brilliant movie. Um, I thought the lost daughter was one of the bravest movies I've seen in a long time. You know, I mean, that's a movie that, I mean, my, my God, try to pitch that movie to somebody. Um, you know, what is it about? It's about how mothers sometimes hate their children <laughs> and want them dead. And, and, and not. I mean, it was extraordinary. And as a parent, Sorry, who's gone through lockdown with a nine-year-old? Yeah, I, re- I, re- I was like, yep, I relate, I relate. A really brave, brave, brave movie, and just like keenly insightful on the part of Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh, beautifully shot. I mean, just ah, God, what a great, great, great movie! I really so obviously so many great movies this year. So you've spent so much of your career on on Broadway. And I'm planning my, I'm a Broadway nerd. I'm planning my big trip to Broadway in March. I'll I'll probably see five or six shows. Great. Um, How do you think Broadway is going to bounce back from, from this pandemic and all, all the, the troubles from it? You know, I, I, I have very good friends who are Broadway producers. I have very good friends who are Broadway actors and we're talking about it. And everybody is just super willing to continue what they love to do. Nobody is giving up. Nobody is throwing in the towel. You know, everyone is going to just continue doing what they're going to do. Um, it's tricky because, you know, theaters want their rent and light, lighting uh, utilities want to pay their light bills paid. Um, they're asking actors and other unions to take pay cuts. Why should they? Why should the actors and the unions be the ones who bear the burden on their back? Um, maybe the banks could give a little money back. Maybe the theater owners could give a little money back. Maybe the, you know what I mean? There's a lot of ways to slice this. And so, you know, again, you know, talking about, uh, you know, um, uh, accidental wolf and the wanting to help the stranger, but being aware of the scam, there's a history in our business of producers asking unions to take pay cuts hmm. to, to be good citizens and to help out. But then we never get the money back. We never, we know that, that, that. So once these precedents come, so we are very reluctant as unions to give in on these things and to be the sacrificial lamb in a way. So I hope there's a way to 
to find a way out of this pandemic and still respect the fact that everybody uh, doesn't have an equal burden. Uh, everybody is not is not sacrificing equally. An actor who is making twelve hundred bucks a week is out of a job and they have no fallback. Yeah, they they don't they don't have anything else. The investor who put in five million and is unhappy about that has a different life. They have a different fallback. The theater owner has a different fallback. You know, so um, what I don't want to see is people to give up. You know, I, I I would hate to see any actor who uh, feels like they have to do something else and has to give up their dream of being an actor. Um, uh, but you know, I know lots of stories of actors who have lost their apartments, who have mm. just said, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't wait in New York for a year mm. and keep paying rent. I got to move back. I got to go back to Boise. I got to go back to yeah. Kansas city and I'm going to do something else. You know, I, it's a tough business. Um, I do know that there will always be a theater and there'll always be a Broadway. And I know that there are, oh, and you know, what, what's been great about this period is that I feel like other, other voices have gotten their opportunity to express themselves because there's a willingness to experiment, I think, and a willingness to try to do other kinds of shows. And I think that's been really, really cool. Well, listen, uh, Dennis, I, I mean, I, there's so many things, you know, 98 revival of cabaret. And I, I love uh, Judge Abernathy on the good Wife. I mean, I'm such a huge fan, really you. great, great pleasure to uh, talk to you and remind everybody season two of the accident and wolf is now streaming exclusively on topic. Dennis, thank you so much for doing this, man. We really appreciate your My time. pleasure. Thank you for your intelligence and your lovely welcome. It's, it's amazing to talk to people like you who are so deeply rooted in all of this, this great stuff. It's amazing. I'm, I'm really impressed. That's nice to hear. Thank you, Dennis. Really cool. He is, there are so many great performances in his career. And uh, he's been in everything. I mean, there's so many, I mentioned 98 revival of cabaret. How great was that? And people know him from the good wife and American horror story. And this is us. Like my mom, Don Mashansky, Palm Springs, California, thrilled that he's on this show. I mean, it's just like, what a career. True blood. True blood. Yeah. I mean, so versatile. And I'll tell you, there's not many people that look as good as he does with a hat. Yeah, no, he's rocking that. Uh, was that a pork pie hat? Yeah, he's kind of got the uh, Popeye Doyle kind of look, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, he does. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Um, well, listen, uh, stuff like this is, and this show is brought to you by our friend Jacob and Ronnie. And you know what's going on right now is Uber and Lyft accidents a lot. And if you're involved in an Uber or Lyft accident, you got to realize this. There are so many different layers of insurance. Like there's the driver's insurance and then there's the Uber insurance and then there's your insurance. And all this stuff is all sort of mixed up and really hard to handle and really hard to manage. So if you are involved in an Uber or Lyft accident, you want Jacob and Ronnie. He literally, and I'm not making this up, has handled more Uber and Lyft accident cases than anybody in the country. He's been on the cutting edge of this. So any kind of accident, and talking about Uber and Lyft, any kind of accident, you want a guy like Jacob and Ronnie on your side. He's the guy I called when I got into an accident in 2019. Uh, I trust him. You can trust him too. He will get you the justice that you deserve. So remember the number, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. 
844-24-JACOB. Or remember the catchy jingle, accident or injury. Call Jacob and Ronnie. Call Call Jacob. Jacob. There you go. uh, You know what? I'm going to be less judgmental in 2022. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, timing and all that. We're fine. We're fine. So, uh, hey, if you're listening to the show, please subscribe. We appreciate that a lot. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review. Uh, Sue, really fun today. Dennis was great. Um, Good good seeing you. I've decided I'm not going to get any sort of uh, plastic surgery. Thank God. You talked me out of it. Talk, to, talk me on it. Probably the first time you've ever listened to me. <laughs> I think it probably is. But a, but a very important time to listen yeah, to me. Yeah, no, exactly. I needed I needed a sound person to tell me I was crazy. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.